Open up your Bibles. Mark chapter 8. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 21. This is the word of God. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to the, these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another, the disciples did, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousands, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And the disciples said to him, Twelve. And seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And Jesus said to them, Do you not yet understand? This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. God, we need your grace. We need it uh, more desperately than we need anything else. And we need you to meet us this morning in your grace. And we need you to reveal your word to us. Would you show up? God, we know that as your word says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For you have written in the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning, I will thwart. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. God, that is our prayer this morning. We need the mind of Christ to understand anything that you have told us here in the scriptures. We need you by your spirit to illuminate Jesus and all of his goodness, all of his beauty, so that we might believe in him and trust in him for eternal life. Would you do that now? We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So when I was a kid, we used to travel a lot because I played youth baseball. And we always had these tournaments kind of in far corners of Colorado. We had one tournament in Steamboat Springs. And I'll remember this, you know, the, as long as I live, because we were playing the Cherry Creek Bruins. And the reason we were so excited to play the Cherry Creek Bruins was because on their team was the son of my idol growing up. It was Jack Elway, the son of John Elway. And we were playing this tournament in Steamboat Springs. And it was at Strawberry Park. Still remember the name of the park. Well, you have to understand about Strawberry Park that there was this large parking lot had to be about the size of two football fields. And then after the parking lot, there was a football field. And then after the football field, there was this steep hill, and then there was Strawberry Park. That's where you would play the baseball game. So my parents drop me and my friend Dave Lamb off at the field about an hour before the game, and we walk through the parking lot, and about halfway through, we come alongside who we think are the coaches of the Cherry Creek Bruins. And we have our heads down and we're just walking and we're talking. They're asking us how our season's going. We go through the parking lot, go through the football field, down the hill to the baseball field. We go our separate ways. Well, about halfway through the game, we're crushing the Cherry Creek Bruins. And Jack Elway was pitching. So we were just stoked, right? Everything's going our way. But then word gets out that, oh, John Elway's in the stands, and everybody recognizes him. We're all looking on the bench. There's John Elway right over there. And so immediately after the game's over, we run over to our parents. I go up to my parents and say, can we go see John Elway? And they say, what do you mean? You have seen John Elway. I said, no, no, no. I, I want to go see him. Like, I want to go shake his hand. I want to talk to him. They're like, you did talk to him. You talked to him all the way as you walked up to the field. Don't you realize that's who you were talking to the entire time? And my thought was, I am such an idiot. <laughs> How could I not see my idol growing up, John Elway? I expected him to be in, you know, number seven, blazing orange. And my parents finally, you know, in, in their disbelief said to me, hey, you know, the next time that that happens, you should probably look up. <laughs> Here's the thing, John Elway, he was right in front of me. I saw John Elway, but I didn't see him. You know what I mean? I saw him, but I just never saw him. And in that section that we just read this morning, and the section that we're going to be looking at this morning, these are the closing scenes of the first act of Mark's gospel. If you think of Mark's gospel as a play, there really are two acts. And in the first act, the main focus of Mark in this first act is to answer the question, who is Jesus? 
That is the burden that Mark has been trying to get us to see. Who is Jesus? What is his identity? That's the question of the first act. In fact, that's been the question of the disciples all along in them following Jesus. Remember, there was this time when Jesus was in a boat with his disciples and a violent storm picks up and Jesus rebukes the wind, he rebukes the waves and there's complete calm. Well, the first thing that the disciples say in response to this, even though they're trembling in fear, they say to one another, who then is this? Who is this guy that even the wind and the sea obey him? It wasn't just the question of the disciples either. It was the questions of those who were in the upper strata of society. Word had got out about Jesus, the miracles he'd performed, the teaching that he's done. And word got out, oh, there's this Jesus fellow. And rumors started spreading about who Jesus was. King Herod, who was really the king or tetrarch over the area that Jesus lived in. He heard of Jesus, and some people were saying about Jesus' identity, you know, maybe he's John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, no, this is Elijah. Others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. See, that's the burden of the first act of Mark's gospel. People are asking the question, who is Jesus? And there are those throughout this, if you've been paying attention closely, there are some who do understand who Jesus is. They don't see him fully yet, but they do understand that there is something unique and special about this man that makes him more than just a human being. In fact, they realize this person might, in fact, be God. There's the unclean woman that we read about a couple weeks ago. She had this hemorrhage for 12 years. She was ceremonially unclean. She couldn't worship with the people of God, a complete religious and spiritual outcast. She sees Jesus. She sees him. There's other people like lepers. There's other people like the children in Mark's gospel, the sick, the deaf, the blind. They all see Jesus, but they also see Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the God of creation, Jesus, the Christ, the King of heaven and earth. And because they know who Jesus is, because they know his identity, they relate to him in faith. They realize, if there's anybody, anybody at all that can heal me from my infirmities, this, this guy's got to be it. If there's a guy who can take my dying daughter and bring her back to life, then surely it's got to be this guy. If there's anyone who can cleanse me from my moral pollution, my sin, surely it's got to be this Jesus. He seems like he's the only one who can do that. Some people see Jesus and actually see him. But as this first act comes to a close, we see in these closing scenes those who see Jesus, but they're a lot like me with John Elway. Even though they see him with their two eyes, they don't see him for who he really is. And as a result, they don't relate to him in faith and they relate to him in a wrong way. But before we get to that, these two unexpected groups who don't see Jesus for who he truly is, before that, I wanna pause because you notice in verses one through 10 here in chapter eight, Jesus reminds everyone by performing this utter miracle, just exactly who he is. 
He performs this miracle to remind everybody who he is. Take a look at verse 1. Jesus, again, is surrounded by a great crowd. And this crowd, again, has nothing to eat. They've been with Jesus for three days now. And Jesus says he has compassion on them because they've been with him for three days. It's a deserted wilderness. Some people had made a long journey. They want to come and earnestly hear from Jesus. And so Jesus asked his disciples, hey, bring me the seven loaves that you have with you. Bring me the few fish that you have with you. And after breaking the bread and blessing the fish, he gives it to his disciples. And after all is said and done, you read in verse eight that they all ate and were satisfied. 4,000 people all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And now, We've seen Jesus perform this kind of miracle before, haven't we? If you've been following along through our study in the Gospel of Mark, all you have to do is just flip back one page to Mark chapter 6, and you see Jesus does the same thing. He's in a desolate wilderness with his disciples. This time there's 5,000 people, and Jesus feeds them miraculously by multiplying just five loaves of bread and two fish. Two times Jesus does this. Two times. And for those who would have been acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, these two miracles would have signified right away who Jesus was. Standing right in front of them was not just any other person. It wasn't Elijah. It wasn't a prophet. It wasn't John the Baptist. But this Jesus, in fact, was the Lord God. And you see this if you are reminded about the story of the Exodus. So this is the second book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. And in this book, we read that the people of God are enslaved in Egypt. So God raises up Moses to deliver them from Egypt, bring them through the wilderness. And it's once they're in the wilderness, a place without food, no provision, no water. It's once they've been delivered from Egypt that the first thing the people of God say when they're in the desert is to grumble against God. They get out into the desert and they go to Moses and they say, chapter 16, verse 3 in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel said to Moses, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Remember then when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger, Moses. What's the matter with you? You have to understand Moses, probably what he was thinking. He's like, guys, I just split a Red Sea for you. Do you realize that? I just split the Red Sea. God, God brought his fiery judgment down on the people of Egypt and killed the firstborn of Egypt for you and spared you. And your first thought in going into the wilderness is, man, when we were in Egypt in slavery, remember the meat we had? Wow, that was good meat. Must have been T-bone. Why'd you bring us out here, Moses, to kill us by starvation in the desert? And it's at that moment that God does something only God can do. God speaks to Moses directly and says, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then, 
It's once you've seen that, then after that miracle, then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Only God can bring something out of nothing. Only God can rain bread in the wilderness and bring sustenance and life in a place of death. That's something only God can do. And here you have Jesus some 1,200 or 1,400 years after Moses, after God reigning bread in the wilderness, doing the same thing, not just once, but twice, so that all would know that he is the Lord your God. Jesus is the Lord your God. It's really interesting, you know, critical scholars, some critical scholars, they look at this account in Mark chapter 8, and they say, there's no way that this miracle happened twice. Just no way. So what they say is, Jesus performed this miracle once. And out of that miracle, there were kind of these two traditions that formed. One tradition said, oh yeah, you know, it was about 5,000 people, 12 loaves and fi- or five loaves and fishes, to, uh, and two fish. Five loaves, two fish. But then there was another guy who carried his own tradition, and it ended up being 4,000 people, seven loaves, and a few fish. It's really the same story, but just two different traditions. And Mark, when he was making his gospel, said, okay, you know what, I'll just put both in there because I don't know which one to go with. And the reason these critical scholars think that is because of what the disciples say in verse 4. Remember, they had already seen Jesus multiply loaves and fishes. So then Jesus, chapter 8, verse 4, he says, hey, guys, come here. I want to feed this crowd. I want you to do this for me. And what do they say? Jesus, how can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Are you kidding me? You kidding me? I already did this. I did this once. Are you telling me you are so dense that you ask this question again? How can God provide in this desolate place? One scholar, one of these critical scholars says this. He says, the perplexity of the disciples is the primary reason we should not see this as a separate event. Surely, having earlier witnessed the feeding of a similar crowd, the disciples could not be so forgetful or dense to ask such a question. They've already experienced one such miracle. Should they not have expected another in this instance? But think about it. Is this not the experience of every normal person with God? Isn't that... Is is that... Is that your experience with God? Raise your hand if that's your experience with God, that you have to ask him repeatedly. Those of you who are not raising your hand are liars. (laughs) You are liars. Because here's the reason. I know that. This happens to me all the time. A crisis happens in my life. And so I cry out to God, God, deliver me from this, please. Would you miraculously intercede for me here? What does God do in his goodness? his provision and his love for me, he provides miraculously. And what do I do as a follow-up? I promise God, I will always be faithful to you. I will always be faithful. I'll be grateful, God. I'll never doubt or lack faith again. I will always trust you. But then what happens? 18 months pass by and another crisis hits and I throw up my hands and wonder, how am I going to get through this? Anybody else have that experience? Everybody raise your hand. (laughs) All right. 
I remember we had uh, McLean, who was our second child. And I remember in that moment crying out to God, how are we going to do this? Whew. Two children? How, how are we going to do this? How are we going to pay for food? How are we going to pay for diapers? How are we going to pay for clothes? How am I going to pay for my mortgage? But do you know what? In God's goodness, in his grace, in his provision, he met every single need. We never lacked for diapers. In fact, we're swimming in diapers. We never lacked for food. We never lacked for clothing. We never lacked for anything. Because God was faithful. That's who he is. But the cycle repeated itself. Because 23 months later, I'm looking at an ultrasound and I'm looking and I'm saying, there's two more. That's... That's not good. And I go back into crisis mode. I say, what are you doing, God? Don't you know how irresponsible I am? I can't handle four. I'm just one man. Oh, for the love of all that is good. How are we going to do this? But we all know that experience. This is us. We constantly need God to remind us he's faithful. He's good. He'll provide. That's who he is. We're so apt to forget it. C.S. Lewis, in his fourth book in the Narnia series, it's The Silver Chair. The two main characters, one is Eustace Scrub, the other is Jill Pole. They go into Narnia, and the first thing that happens is Eustace Scrub, he's right on the edge of a cliff, and he falls down this cliff. And Jill thinks that he's, she's killed Eustace. But it's at that moment she hears something rustling in the bushes behind her, and she looks, and there's Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion. And Aslan looks and says, be calm, Jill. Eustace isn't dead. I've actually sent him away. He's at another part of Narnia, and I'm going to send you there with him. I have a mission for you. I've called you to myself. I'm going to send you with him. But this is imperative, Jill. You have to remember these four signs that I'm going to give you. They are going to guide you on your, jersey, on your journey. You have to remember them. And so he shows her these four signs. And then after he shows her the four signs, he says, Jill, repeat back to me the four signs. And Jill kind of scratches her head and says, okay, well, the fir first is this. And Aslan says, no, listen to me, Jill. You have to remember this. It is imperative that you remember this. So he shows her again and again and again until she finally remembers because that's our experience with God. We constantly need the reminder like the disciples in a fallen desolate world filled with death, you and I constantly need the reminder again and again and again that Jesus is the Lord your God who will provide for you, who is the Lord God in flesh, who cares for you, who loves you, who will provide your every need. You need not worry. So Jesus performs this miracle beginning in verse 1 all the way through verse 10 to remind us he is the Lord your God, the Son of God. And it's after this miracle that Jesus encounters a group that should have seen that, but they didn't see it. The religious leaders of the day, those who should have got it, missed it. They see Jesus, but they don't see him. It's the Pharisees, beginning in verse 10. Immediately, Jesus gets into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. The Pharisees come out, okay, Jesus, all right, 
Rumor has it you're a great prophet. Rumor has it that you're like Elijah. You might even be someone who's divine. You might even be the son of God, some are saying, the Christ, the king of heaven and earth. You apparently multiply bread, raise people from the dead, heal the sick. So come on, let's see it. Show us a sign from heaven and then we'll believe in you. Let's see it. Come on, show us with our very eyes right now and then we'll believe. But Jesus in response to this argumentative posture from the Pharisees, is very emphatic in verse 12. He sighed deeply in his spirit. (sighs) Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation in Jesus' left them. He left them, never to return to him. I don't know if you read this account and you're like me, you wonder, Jesus, like, why don't you perform this miracle here? Why don't you do it? Here's your chance. You can prove to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, you can prove who you are and show them you did it for Jairus. Remember Jairus, right? His daughter was dying and he came to Jesus Jesus and said, heal my daughter. Jesus showed a sign to them. He raised the daughter from the dead. Jesus did this for the paralytic who came to him and said, Jesus, I've been been crippled my whole life. Would Would you heal me? Jesus did it for them then. Why won't he do it now? Prove yourself to the Pharisees that you are who you say you are. But here's what you have to realize about the Pharisees and about many of us who approach Jesus even today. The Pharisees, just like many of us today, do not come to genuinely ask for a sign from Jesus. The Pharisees and many of us today do not relate to Jesus with a desire to believe. They don't don't come to Jesus and say, you know what, Jesus This is really hard. I want to believe in who you are. I I really do, but I just want you to show me a sign because this is really difficult. I struggle to believe, but the way the world is, it just makes it so difficult. Please show me a sign, then I'll believe in you. But that's not their posture here. It's not the posture of the Pharisees. Notice, that's not the way the Pharisees relate to Jesus. Look again at verse 11. What does it say? It said the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. What? To test him. That word in Greek is pyrazo. Throughout the first act of Mark, throughout all the first act, that word is only used one other time. And it's after Jesus is baptized, filled with the spirit of God and then sent out into the wilderness. And who does he meet there? He was in the wilderness 40 days being tested by Satan. So don't you see, when it comes to the Pharisees, they're not coming asking genuine questions here. They're not coming to relate to Jesus, to believe in him. No, they're looking for reasons not to believe in Jesus. They are very emphatically coming to destroy him. That's their desire, in fact. That's been their desire all along. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Remember, Jesus had gone to a synagogue on the Sabbath and he wanted to heal this man who had a withered hand. He had a withered hand his entire life. 
And Jesus calls forth and says, stretch out your hand and be healed. And what do you know? This man stretches out his hand and it is completely restored to the way God intended it. And what's the response of the Pharisees? Chapter three, verse six, it's not good. We read the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Realize here, the Pharisees have no desire to believe in Jesus. No, they have come to test, to accuse, to destroy. They have come to Jesus looking for reasons not to believe in who he is. Some of us come with that posture today. Some of you might be in here and you, you, you say, I'm, I'm just asking sincere, honest questions. I'm just earnestly seeking Jesus out, but in your heart of hearts, you're actually looking for reasons not to believe in Jesus. You know, if you ever watch like lectures on YouTube, maybe I'm the only one, okay? You watch lectures on YouTube, especially around a controversial topic, and you'll have this guy get up there, he's pouring his heart out, you know, he's been studying this stuff his whole life, but then they'll have a question and answer after. And there's always two types of students who come up and ask questions. First, there's the sincere student. This student comes up and they, they want genuine clarity. They'll say, man, you know a lot about your stuff. Uh, help me understand this because I learned this in my class and how does that relate to this and that and the other? But then there's another kind of student that comes up and their desire is not to ask a question in genuine sincerity. Instead, they come in the disguise of a question. They don't want to answer so much as they want to advance their own agenda, reinforce their own opinion, and to convince others, everybody else, I want you all to know of my pre-existing beliefs and I want to convince you otherwise. So they come up to the microphone and they say, yeah, I, I know you're an Oxford visiting scholar and I know you've spent your entire life studying the history of fiscal policy in the USA, but I took microeconomics 202 and I'm a sociology major. So how do you respond to this? And that's the posture of their questioning. But all in all, there is no desire to actually learn, to be humbled, to gain understanding, to ask questions. No, they come in the disguise of a question to argue and advance their own agenda. And that is the same opposition of the Pharisees here. It's the opposition in many of our hearts this morning. Their only desire is to test. They don't want to believe. They're looking for reasons not to believe. Some of us, again, we approach Jesus in this way when it comes to the Bible or Christianity or God or Jesus himself or the church. Some of us don't come and say, help me understand. We just want to ask questions in order to be heard. As a pastor, I encounter this regularly. A person will come and they'll ask questions about the Bible. They'll say, well, how do you think that the Bible's the word of God? And so what I'll do is I'll open up the Bible and I'll say, here's what the Bible says about itself. Notice how the Bible speaks of itself as being internally consistent and how it points to Jesus and how it's been breathed out by God, that its author is God who cannot err, so it's inerrant. And then I say, look at Jesus. Look what he believed about the Old Testament scriptures and what he believes about the word of God. He believes that every part of it is the word of God. Do you see that? And no sooner that I answer that question, the next question comes. Well, what about what God did in the Old Testament? What about all those evil things that he commanded in the Old Testament? 
So again, we'll open up to those passages. We'll explain the context. We'll show how in patience, right, God is calling people to repentance. And this is actually a foreshadow of his judgment eternally, which is to come. And he's showing us in vivid picture that that's coming. And then the next question comes. And then the next question comes. And then the next question comes. There's like a tennis ball machine being thrown at you. Boom, 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 boom. And I'm kind of like Roger Federer, right? I'm trying to knock him out of the park. I just can't. And at some point you have to ask, wait, Time out. I've tried to answer no less than 15 of your questions, and it doesn't seem like you have moved spiritually one inch. Could it be, I have to ask him at this point, could it be that you're not really desirous to learn? Could it be that you're not really here for answers? After all, how many more questions do you need answered before you will believe? Have you ever asked yourself that question? If you are struggling with faith, is there an answer to that question? Is there a number of objections that you want answered? I promise you, if you bring those to Jesus in sincerity, he will answer them. But if there's no end to the number of questions you can ask, if there's no number of answers that you can receive, then your heart is far from God and you need to repent and turn to him. Because Jesus shows us here this reality. There are some, like the Pharisees, who could have all of their questions answered They could have God perform a miracle in front of their very eyes, but they would still never believe. It would never be enough because their hearts are far from God and they are hardened. I was just talking to a friend recently, came into my office and he said, you know, I was going to church. I was going to church for most of my adult life, but my heart wasn't really in it. I was actually looking for reasons how I could justify my own sin and justify my own unbelief. So I was on the lookout for the first sign of hypocrisy so that when I saw that, that would justify me walking away from the church and walk away from God. And so one day it came. Word came out that the pastor of the church that he was at was having an affair with his secretary. And he said, there it is. That's it. That's what I've been looking for. I knew all Christians were hypocrites. I knew this was all a charade. I'm out of here. See you by Christianity. God graciously brought him back, though. God graciously called him back to himself, brought him to repentance, softened his heart. And as he looks back on that event, he's very clear. All I was trying to do was just to, to excuse my unbelief, to excuse my own sin. And if I could find something to pin it on rather than God himself, then I could be justified in not being a Christian and not following God. I could point to that and see, see, that's why I'm not a Christian. But in his heart, he knew, he knew. He was just looking for reasons not to believe. So what does Jesus do? This may be one of the most sobering passages in the Bible because verse 12 Jesus, as you see, is cut to the heart by this. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? (sighs) Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. What more do you need, Pharisees? What more do you need? I've restored hearing to the deaf. I've healed the sick. I've walked on water. I've brought the dead back to life again. I've exercised demons. 
I've commanded nature. I've cleansed lepers. I've made the lame walk. What sign is there that will be enough? What more do you want God to do for you? I've done the signs. But you are willfully blind to the things of God, so no sign is going to be given to you. I'm not going to put up with your charade. Incidentally, if you want to study this at home, Luke chapter 16, you get a vision a vision told by the lips of Jesus of what it looks like for a person who's in hell. In Luke chapter 16, there's a man in hell. And he says, it's in agony here, Jesus. Send somebody to my brothers. Tell them how bad this is. Please, they'll believe you. If they see a vision from you, God, they're going to believe. And Jesus says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. They have the Bible. And if they don't believe that, then they won't even believe if somebody raises from the dead before their very eyes. What more do you want, Pharisees? The better question we have to ask ourselves is what, what more do you want? What, what do we want? Do you want God to become a human being to reveal himself? Do you want him to do that? To make it clear that he does exist in human flesh, he's done that in Jesus. Do you want God to experience the pain of being human and understand what it's like to live in a dark and broken world? He's done that too in Jesus. Do you want God to answer your questions, listen to your concerns, give you clarity about what he expects from you? Do you want him to have a compassionate ear toward you? He does that in Jesus. Do you want God to take the judgment for all of your sins and moral failures upon himself? Do you want God to prove his love to you? Do you want the Lord your God, the one who created heaven and earth, the one who fed Israel in the wilderness, do you want him to come to earth, humble himself and be a servant to you? To wash your feet? to lay his life down to serve you, to sacrifice himself for you, to take the punishment of your sins and the wrath of God in your place in his crucifixion. He does that too in Jesus. He does it. What more do you want him to do? What other God would do that? What other God would rescue you from all your moral failures and sins and your unconscionable deeds? What other God would do that? What other God would offer his only son that you might be rescued from your sins and from the judgment you deserve? What more do you want him to do? The Pharisees see Jesus, but they don't see him. They are willfully blind. They're not just ignorant. They're not curious. They're not willing to be persuaded by Jesus. They came out to test him, to put Jesus in his place. They're not looking for reasons to believe. They're looking for reasons not to believe. And notice what Jesus does next. After this encounter, you see this in verse 15, Jesus gets back into the boat with his disciples to sail again away from the Pharisees. And then in verse 15, Jesus cautions his disciples. He says, watch out. Beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. You have to understand this. Leaven in the Bible is almost exclusively used negative. It's only used positively one time. 
Yeast or leaven is a metaphor that connotes corruption, unholiness, danger, right? It's a small little germ that touches everything and has its influence in everything, usually negatively. Jane, my daughter, she's been doing this thing recently where she'll come to us, she'll put her fist like this and put her hand over her fist and she'll say, lift the lid. So you lift the lid. And she says, put your finger in. Okay, she says, swirl it around. Take your finger out, close the lid, flush, the, flush it. Thank you, you just cleaned my toilet. <laughs> Terrible, isn't it? <laughs> I thought to myself, that's an illustration of leaven. Whoever the son of gun is that taught my daughter that and corrupted her, my three-year-old daughter with that kind of potty talk, you're on a list of mine. I asked Jane, where did you learn that? She said, Eli, my brother. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> Just a little bit of leaven. Just a little bit. This corrupting influence spreads quickly and corrupts everything it touches. So Jesus says, watch out, Deer Creek. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. After all, remember, who was it that conspired with the Pharisees to destroy Jesus? Remember, after he stretched forth his hand in the synagogue, remember that? Mark chapter 6, or sorry, Mark chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees immediately went out with the Herodians how to destroy him. See, what the Pharisees, Herod, and their followers demonstrate is that you, you can be respectable, highly esteemed, dignified, and even considered religious and spiritual, and actually be doing nothing more than opposing the Son of God himself. In fact, fast forward out of Act 1, the first act, fast forward into Act 2. To when Jesus at the climax of act two is being crucified and you see that this leaven is so dangerous because as Jesus is being crucified, the scribes who were close with the Pharisees, they're looking at Jesus being crucified and we're told that the chief priests with the scribes mocked Jesus to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and then we'll believe. Will they believe? No. No. That's why Jesus gives his disciples this warning right here. Watch out. Beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of heaven. It's the kind of leaven that opposes God, that actually is resolutely set against God, but it comes in the form of, I'm just asking questions. I'm just being open-minded. I'm just being objective. I'm just trying to get a better understanding. I'm trying to gain a broader perspective. But in the end, it's nothing more than opposing yourself to the king of the universe. Watch out. Beware. Many of you know this. I went to Vanderbilt for my grad school. And there were about 10 of us who were Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christians who entered the grad school. And 
We believe Jesus died for our sins. We believe he was resurrected from the dead. We believe that he's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe these truths about Jesus. But through our walk through Vanderbilt, a very dark, a very skeptical place, a very hostile place to the gospel, even though we talked about Jesus every day, even though we had our heads in the Bible every single day, even though we had world-class professors who were distinguished and dignified every single day, giving us lectures, at the end, there were only two of us who still believed in Jesus as the Lord our God. Because it was nothing more than the guise of dignified and respectable questions given by lectures of people who looked reputable, but all it was was rank unbelief and spiritual blindness, nothing but the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out. So the first group, these Pharisees, they see Jesus, but man, they don't see him, do they? They don't see him. And finally, once Jesus is in, the, is in the boat, that's when he encounters a second group who still don't see him. And this is even more unexpected than the Pharisees. The people who don't see him are his own disciples, the followers of Jesus. Immediately after Jesus cautions his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, the disciples apparently think that Jesus is talking about everyday ordinary bread. They hear yeast, they think bread. So they start discussing with one another. Well, you see verse 14, first off that they only had one loaf of bread with them in the boat. Then Jesus mentions the leaven, and then verse 16, they all of a sudden begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Weren't you supposed to bring the bread? No, I'm pretty sure it's John's turn. No, 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 it's Bartholomew's turn. It's Thaddeus's turn. It's everybody else's turn. They start having this quarrel about the fact that they only have one bread. Here's Jesus talking about a grave spiritual truth, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, which leads a person in spiritual blindness to crucify God and mock the Son of God, a leaven which leads a person to challenge the Son of God, the leaven which leads a person to eternal damnation, and their focus is fixed on the fact that they only have one loaf of bread. They completely miss the point. Man, they miss the point. There's one pastor who tells this story. He's, you've got to know about this pastor that he has this epic mustache. I mean, huge mustache. It looks like somebody put a push broom under his nose. He looks like Tom Selleck, Right? He tells this story about how he's putting his daughter to bed one night and he's telling her these very serious theological and spiritual truths. And it's, it's getting to the point where he's like, oh, wow, she's really resonating with this. She's getting it. Finally, she's getting it. And he's trying to be sincere and going down to her level and saying, hey, honey, do you understand? Do you understand? And she says, well, daddy, let me ask you one question. Can I ask you one question? He says, absolutely, sweetie, please. And she says, daddy, what does your face look like under all that hair? I just told you these profound spiritual truths. It looks clean, okay? They just completely miss the point. That's, that's the disciples here. They completely miss the point. Jesus is talking about one thing. Their eyes are fixed on something else. They completely miss that Jesus is not talking about material bread. Friends, do you realize that you are an eternal creature. You are an eternal 
spiritual creature made in the image and likeness of God who will live eternally, either with God in heaven and fellowship with him or in hell. Some of you will live to 72 years. Some of you will live to 80. Some of you are even in your 90s and late 80s. And as important as our life on this earth matters, that is not Jesus' main concern. As important as your 401k might seem, as important and as stressful as inflation or college applications might seem, as important as the future of our country or the advance of our political party or our material, earthly, temporal concerns here and now, and they are important, God cares about them, bring them to the Lord. They pale in comparison to the future of your eternal soul. You are a spiritual creature. There's that quote that we can be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. But is that really our problem? Man, that sounds profound, doesn't it? Yeah, you, oh, you guys, you're just so concerned about God. You don't care about anything in this world. Is that, is that really our problem, that we don't care about anything in this world, that we're just so focused on heaven, so focused on God, so focused on Jesus that we just don't care about things in this world? Is that really our problem? This morning, I, I rolled out of bed, 5, 10 a.m. I got on my knees to pray, and I'm looking up, to God because I'm thinking I'm going to go and preach the word of God to the people of God today and right as I'm about to do that I, I reach my, for my phone and I think what time does the Super Bowl start? 4.30 it's not going to really start at 4.30 no there's going to be the national anthem then you know they're going to have all these festivities and then they're going to have the interviews and all the you know documentary things beforehand it's not going to start till 5.10 and then and then there's a long half. I want to go to bed at nine. How could they do this? It used to start earlier. We're just like these disciples, aren't we? Similar to the Pharisees, the disciples, they see Jesus, but they don't see him. They're so focused on the here now. Do we have enough bread, Jesus? Did we bring enough bread with us? And so Jesus Ask them seven rhetorical questions as a mild rebuke to these guys. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, this is verse 17, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have you eyes? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? And he said to them, verse 21, do you not yet understand? What more do you want, disciples? What more do you want? I've multiplied five loaves, two fish to feed 5,000. I've multiplied seven loaves to feed and a few fish to feed 4,000. Do you not yet understand? And the reality is for the disciples to finally get it, to finally see Jesus in all of his fullness and all of his goodness, for the disciples to finally see him clearly, they are going to need something more. All the miracles in the world. God could, God could come here and multiply loaves and fishes 
so that we could bring them to our Super Bowl parties later this afternoon and that would still not convince us that he is who he says he is. Something else, another miracle has to occur before anyone will see clearly who Jesus is and relate to him in faith and believe in him and trust in him. And you see it again if you fast forward into Act 2. Fast forward again to the cross where finally, when Jesus is crucified, the miracle happens that any person needs to see to finally see Jesus. Again, verse 31, the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. It's only once you witness this miracle. Oh, this miracle once you see the Son of God being crucified and suffering for the sins that you've committed, laying his life down in order to redeem you from eternal damnation, it's only once you see that and believe in that act of love that you will see and believe in Jesus and place your faith in him. At the cross, Jesus drives home this spiritual truth, the miracle that you have to see and believe that God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whoever should believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life, not eternal damnation in hell. Only then will you see Jesus and see Jesus. It's the miracle we need. Let's pray. Lord, Jesus, you are mighty, you are good, you are glorious. We want to see you more clearly. Oh, Jesus, we are so blind at times. We, we hear, but we don't hear. We need this reminder, and we thank you that you're patient with us. Like the disciples, you pursue us. Oh, and Jesus, thank you that you do not leave us in our spiritual blindness. You do not leave us deaf to the things of God, but you after your death and resurrection, poured out your Holy Spirit that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear. And would you help us see this miracle of miracles, this great miracle of you pouring out your blood for the forgiveness of sins, and would we worship you, adore you, help us see that. Open up our eyes. We pray this all in your name. Amen.